you know, I want to talk about friendship today and what the Bible has to say about friendship. And this is a group of friendship veterans. I'm sure that if we were to collectively come together, sit around the tables and go, what makes a good friend? I bet we would come up with a comprehensive list. And I bet if we were even to ask the question, why, why is friendship important? I bet we'd come up with some good answers to that. I'm, I'm reflective more and more on friendship as I get older. I have some friends that have transcended the years, and I'm sure you have too. It doesn't matter what zip code you live in, they're still friends. And then there are other friends that sort of drop off by the wayside. And so I, I think about this. My, my dad is 81, and he just lost his best friend of life. Like, he's known Gordon for most of his life, and he laid Gordon to rest. And I, I feel bad for my dad because Gordon was more of a brother to him than my dad's actual brother was a brother to him. And so friendship is so important. And it's uh, so significant that even in the culture that we live in today, there's research on what the problem is in friendship. I don't know if you know this, maybe you've experienced this, or maybe at least you've read it, but friendship in America in particular is on the decline. There was some surveys done by Cigna, which is a, a you know, big health insurance company. And Cigna, and this is this year, they pulled 20,000 people and they discovered that 54, this is what they said, 54% of respondents say they feel like no one actually knows them. Think about that. More than one in two feels like nobody really knows them. In that same survey, 56% of people said they are, they, they surround them, they're surrounded by people, but those people that surround them are not necessarily with them. In other words, they might have 400 friends on Facebook, but they don't feel like they have any friends. They might... They might gather together for a coffee time and feel like no one cares what they contribute or would miss them if they weren't there. And 40% said they lack companionship and that their relationships aren't meaningful. They feel isolated from others. Isn't it remarkable? It's kind of scary when you think about it because, you know, we live in unprecedented times. How many of you have one of these? Cell phone of some kind or smartphone or an iPad, right? How many of you are on, like, Facebook? You have, they, uh, my kids tell me they won't go on Facebook because, like, we're on Facebook, right? Because it's for old people now, which cracks me up. I'm like, well, first of all, we're not old, okay? You're just young, all right? Do you feel old? I, actually, I feel old around them, but I think I'm young. But it's weird because, uh, you know, when I went away to college, I went away with a typewriter, and uh, when I wanted to communicate with my friends who weren't there, I wrote a letter. Right, exactly. I tried to explain this to the younger generation. They don't understand what that is. In fact, email came in when I was in graduate school because I walked into the lab. This is at Wheaton College in the suburbs of Chicago. I walk into the computer lab, and it, it, it's mobbed. There's students everywhere. And, um, and I, I turned to the, the lab person. It was the beginning of the year. I said, uh, I need to use one of these computers. Is there always a big line? He goes, oh, just, just tell me uh, if, you, if you need it, because I'll just kick one of these students off. They're just emailing. And I said, what's that? <laughs> and he said, he, said, he said, it's an electronic mail, which, of course, we've all forgotten that's what email stands for. I said, well, what do you mean? They like, they like write a letter, print it out, and fax it? And he looked at me. I mean, email was like two weeks old by then, so I was so behind the times. But I started my first job with, you remember the inner office memos, you know, those things? They'd send you one. You had about a 24 to 48-hour turnaround time. And offices now 
are terrible. Now you get an email and you have a two-minute turnaround time, you know. But what's weird is with all of that additional communication, texting, email, telephone, there's no long-distance charges. In college, my grandmother said, call me, collect anytime. I just want to talk to you. My uncle told me her most expensive utility bill every month was my collect calls to my grandmother. But my uncle said, he was the executor of the state, he goes, I don't mind paying it. Call her anytime you want because it makes her happy. Well, today, there's no long-distance charges. I, I can call anywhere on this thing, and there's no long-distance charges. I was in Nairobi a couple of years ago, and I was FaceTiming my family. They were living in California at the time. But here's the crazy part. We all know this, right? And yet friendship's on the decline. Shouldn't friendship be on the incline? Right? It's weird. But it, it seems that what we have is what we always have, which is we have a spiritual problem. When we have a relationship issue, we have a spiritual issue. That's always the underlining. If there's a marriage issue, there's usually a spiritual issue. If there's a parenting issue, there's usually a spiritual issue, right? I mean, this is just how we know this. Our world doesn't always know that, but that's how that is. And so uh, it, it starts, though. This whole friendship topic starts with God. It doesn't start with us. We didn't identify we needed it. God identified we needed it. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Genesis 2. It just, we're just going to look at one verse there. So if you uh, want to just take my word for it as I read it, you may. But um, here's God. He has created the, the whole earth, right? And it's beautiful. And after every day, he stops and he checks and he goes, it's good. He separates light and dark. He says it's good. Land from water, it's good. He goes through all these different steps of creation. At the end of every one, he says it's good. Do you know when he says something's not good? When man... He, he makes man, and he goes, it's not good. This is Genesis 2.18. It's not good. I will make a suitable helper companion for him. And some have suggested that if God would have made woman first, he would have been like, perfection. We're done, right? But if he would have made woman first, yeah, there's a few of you kind of bumping each other right now. I see, yeah, he's right. No, if he would have made woman first all alone, he would have said it's not good for her to be alone. And so he even says, I'll make a suitable helper companion for him. And that word helper companion carries many different meanings. That, that term there, helper companion, is used in the relationship between God and the nation of Israel. So it's not, it's not um, he needed someone to do his dishes. All right? Any amens in the room? <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a few amens in the room. <laughs> but uh, that's what my dad told my mom that meant. But... Um, but uh, and God looked at man, he says, not good for man to be alone. I'll make someone for him. And so that begs the question, what does God have to teach us about community, about relationships? Because he invented it. If he's the inventor of it, he knows how it best functions. So what I want to do, I want to turn to a, a, it's an unusual passage of scripture. Some say it's kind of dark and depressing. I don't. I find, um, I find Ecclesiastes to be a very insightful, wisdom-inducing book. It has some pieces to it that make you, make you cringe a little bit, but once you dive into them and explore them, they make a lot more sense. And so what I'd like us to do, we're going to spend most of our time in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and we're going to talk about biblical community principles we see in Ecclesiastes 4. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, feel free to find that. You might even like to underline if you do that sort of thing. It's Ecclesiastes 4, starting in verse 7. This is what the writer of Ecclesiastes starts out with. He says, I saw something meaningless under the sun, this tail end of verse 7. There was a man all alone. If you underline things in your Bible, you can underline alone. 
he had neither son nor brother. So he's not just alone in friendship, he's alone in family relationships too. There was no end to his toil. This guy works all the time. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. Now that's interesting. We're not dealing with a guy who's all alone and poor. We're dealing with a guy who's all alone and successful. For whom am I toiling, he asked. Why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? It's kind of a weird question to ask. I mean, in our culture today, in our culture today, we say if we see someone who we call successful, nice home, nice vehicles, nice clothes, good job, good reputation, seem like they're not struggling financially, what do we call them? Well, rich, they're successful. They're admirable. We want to be like that. And here's that guy. And that guy goes, why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? You should have all the enjoyment you want. You have all the stuff. He says, this too is meaningless. It's a miserable business. It's a fascinating, fascinating picture of a guy. It almost reminds me of um, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. I know I'm a little early for Christmas season, but uh, Dickens, when he, when he fabricated the story of a Christmas Carol, he created Ebenezer Scrooge. And Ebenezer Scrooge is this guy who, when it comes to financial bottom line, he has more than he needs. Yet he has nobody in his life. And there's this moment where Scrooge with the ghost of Christmas present is in nephew Fred's house. If you remember this scene in the movie or if you've read the book and uh, they're up against the wall and Fred explains to his guests that he had invited Ebenezer Scrooge, his uncle, to the party. And everybody's aghast because they're like, why would you invite that guy? He's a terrible guy. And he goes, no, 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 no. I intend every year to invite him. And they said, well, why would you invite a guy like that? And he says, look, He's, this is 21st century paraphrase of Dickens. He says, look, Scrooge is the loser. He's got everything. And yet he misses out on this great party. What does he, what does he gain by saying no? He, he loses out on jokes and dancing and revelry and great food and great companionship and a fun time together. He, he's the loser. That, that's Dickens' um, insight into this equation. And now, in order for us to really grapple with Ecclesiastes, there's a linguistical thing we should wrestle with just real quickly, and it's pretty easy to wrestle with. Whenever we see the word meaningless in Ecclesiastes, that, that's a hitch for some people. Some people go, ugh, see, that's why I don't like that book. He calls out things as meaningless. In fact, almost half of the time that Hebrew word for meaningless occurs in the Old Testament, almost half the time, it's in Ecclesiastes. So think about that, the, the vast preponderance of the word meaningless throughout the entire Old Testament, right in Ecclesiastes. But meaningless it doesn't mean without meaning. In Ecclesiastes, this is important. So if you like to write things down, take notes, this is one to write down. Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes, meaningless could be better translated transitory, get that transitory, not long-lasting. In other words, it's like a vapor. It, whatever is described as meaningless, it's short-lived, it's temporary. So whatever the situation, it doesn't, it doesn't go on. So let's look at it again. So we look at it, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. His eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is short-lived, it's transitory a miserable business. 
There's an old adage, there's no U-Hauls behind hearses. I used to say that all the time, and then one of my friends texted me a picture of an old hearse pulling a U-Haul, and he's like, I guess it does happen. <laughs> I, I'm not that guy's friend anymore. But, uh, you know, you, I, when, my wife loves watching Egypt documentaries, all the people, they buried themselves with their stuff because they were going to use their stuff in the afterlife, and, well, you know, they, we know you don't get to take the stuff with you. You can bury yourself with all your stuff, and you, all that happens is your stuff gets dug up by an archaeologist years later. That's it. It's transitory. You collect all the stuff, and it doesn't last. And, and here, is a, here is a guy who um, has all this amazing stuff, and it doesn't last. And uh, there's a principle here, and if you like taking notes, the principle right here, community principle number one, is we need friends to share life with. We need friends to share life with. Now, I know that sounds, you've heard that before, I'm sure, and you're like, well, yeah, of course, we need friends to share life with. I, I don't mean we need friends to share the significant, important parts of life with. We do need those friends. What I mean by we need friends to share life with, we need friends to share the boring, insignificant, dull moments of life with. Because great friendships are built on mediocrity. I know that sounds like almost heresy in our culture today. Because today, I, when I speak to young people about this, I tell them I feel genuine grief for them. Because in their world, everything has to be epic. They have to Instagram a picture of the spaghetti that they just made. And they'll put hashtag adulting. Meaning, I've just done something adult-like. And I'm like, I did that when I was 12. But no disrespect to the young. Uh, but but they, everything has to be epic. It has to be the greatest movie, the greatest dessert, the greatest vacation. The picture has to be staged. They, they, they have to put a filter on it so that it doesn't just look good as an event. It has to look magnificent as an event. And a lot of life is just not magnificent. A lot Good friendships are built on fixing a flat tire alongside the road because you took a road trip with a friend and you, then you got a flat tire and then you fix it together and now you have a memory for life and your friendship goes deeper. Mediocre, you probably aren't going to Instagram that, that moment, maybe, but it's just mediocre stuff. I've been married 22 years. My wife and I have enjoyed a great marriage. And there's, I tell young people, particularly when they're getting married, be prepared. There's a lot of like just really dull moments, sitting at restaurants, uh, sitting on the couch while you watch a TV show that later you're like, that TV show was dumb. Those are mixed in with the birth of your kid and the, the baptism of, of uh, your teenager and, and, and dropping your daughter off at college. There's epic moments mixed into mostly just normal moments of life, right? And this guy, he looks around his life, he has everything, and he doesn't have anybody just to share life with, just to um, grab a cup of coffee with, just to talk about a setback at work or a great deal that just went down. Uh, he doesn't have anybody to talk about his dreams, his hopes, his aspirations. He doesn't listen to that for anybody else either. But he has everything, but everything is transitory. The stuff that he has worked so hard to garner and to gain all that stuff, what happens to it? You get a great car. It's the car of your dreams. It's awesome. What happens about a year later? There's another car of your dreams, isn't there, right? I have friends that collect cars or buy and sell cars, and this is the one. This is the one. I've always wanted this one until I get it, and then it's that one. It's transitory. 
You dream, you build the dream home. It's a great home, and you do like the home until the development goes in in your backyard, obscuring your beautiful view of your dream home, and it's not the dream home anymore. It's transitory. Things come, things go. But the people you do life with, that you share life with, that, that lasts. Well, that's community principle number one that we need friends to just do life with. As we go on in the scriptures here, we're going to see community principle number two, is we need friends who make us stronger, make us stronger, maybe, uh, maybe more hopeful, courageous, whatever word you want to put in there. But that idea of stronger is that I become a more positive person, a more hopeful person. And this is where uh, the writer goes on. He says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls down and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And what we have to do, what's really, you know, and whenever you read the Bible, there's a couple messages that are going on. There's the message for us, because the scriptures are described as this living thing. That they're not dead. You know, you, you, read, you read ancient literature, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, and it doesn't change your life. You might go, wow, that's really good. You read it a second or third time, and you go, oh, that's still pretty good, but it doesn't change your life. You read um, Shakespeare uh, from hundreds of years ago, and you go, wow, beautiful poet, but it doesn't inspire me to necessarily dive deep in my relationships. But there's something about the scriptures that when you read them, they are alive. They have a force to them. Have you ever noticed this? Where you uh, a verse get, you read a verse in your devotions in the morning, or maybe you hear a sermon and a verse is read, and you're like, wow, I needed that. Somehow that penetrated my hard heart. Weird. So there's, the Bible has that message. But the Bible was written in a time for a people. And if we were to go back 3,000 years ago, and, re, and, they, and we were the original audience reading this part of Ecclesiastes, we would have taken it literal. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. In other words, put two people out in the field and they'll be able to do the work of three people. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't keep a farm. Not so much. Uh, however, a good community can make you better at what you do, can help you. You can get a better return of your labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. Again, you know, I, probably in our culture, if you fall down, if you're living alone, you can get that little thing, right? You know, the help, I've fallen and I can't get up. You, there's things you can do. You can call. In that culture, if you fall down and nobody knows where you are, you might die there. For us, for us, we probably aren't going to have that problem. But if you fall down in life, a disappointment with work, a disappointment with the kids, a challenge in the marriage, you name it. If you have a friend that can lift you up, can lift your spirits, do you have something there? Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how will one keep warm alone? You know, one of the probably biggest disappointments in marriage was um, in all the movies, you ever notice the romantic couples, they cuddle in bed? And we discovered, uh, like on on our honeymoon, we don't like to touch each other when you're trying to sleep in bed. Now, some of you are cuddlers, and that's wonderful. But I, I, we just can't do it. 
right? But in this culture, there's no furnace. There's, once the embers burn down in the fire in the fireplace or fire pit, you get cold. You cuddle up next to another person. I have a furnace. I will just, I, I will wake up in a pool of sweat if someone's touching me in my bed. I like a, I like a little space there, right? I know most of you agree with me. Some of you are like, that's a bridge too far. I don't want to know that about you. That's in a, I don't think that's appropriate in Sunday school. Okay, um, most of us aren't going to have that problem. But have you ever been sad or depressed? You ever lost something, someone? You ever uh, just walking through a fear? And then a friend comes and they just sit with you. They call you. They say, I'd like to take you out for a cup of coffee. And you're warm, right? The fear hasn't gone away. The challenge hasn't been removed. But you have someone there to comfort you. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. There's challenges in this life. There are challenges in this life that we need other people to help us with. And so as the, as the writer of Ecclesiastes gives us some instructions on biblical community, you need some friends. We all need some friends in our lives that make us stronger people, more courageous, more hopeful people. Well, for the next um, principle of community, I want us to move over to the New Testament. This is in Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. And the community principle here that we see is we need friends who make us better. Better followers of Christ, more faithful followers of Christ. See, on our own, we'll run at a certain pace. And that pace will be a pace that's comfortable to us, but not necessarily honoring to God. But we need we need people in our lives who make us better, more fruitful, faithful Christians. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says. This is Hebrews 10, starting verse 24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Isn't that a good visceral picture? Let us consider how we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. And I love the, the metaphor, the, the image that the writer of, he, of Hebrews uses there with spur. Because in their culture, back to the original audience 2,000 years ago, when the person heard the word spur, they saw spur. When we hear spur, we think, consider how we can challenge one another. We know what to spur one another on means, but we don't see many spurs. At least not very often, right? Unless you have a horse farm, you probably don't wear spurs or see spurs very often. Or unless you love Western movies, you don't see spurs very often. But the reader of this saw spurs. They pictured spurs on the heels of a person. Years ago, college years, I worked at a summer kids camp teaching uh, little children how to ride horses. So I was basic Western elementary level riding skills. I basically taught kids how to not fall off a horse, how to make the horse walk, stop, and how to make them trot. Every now and again, one lucky kid would get the horse to canter, and none of them, because of the age of the horses that we leased, none of those horses had known how to gallop for at least a decade. They were older horses. They were horses about ready to retire, safe for little kids. And so working around those horses, the horse's nature is to stand. They're kind of like big cattle. Unless they get startled, their main goal in life is to eat and not move. 
which is a lot like my 13-year-old son, actually. Very similar. The one tool that I never would allow any of those children to put on themselves was a spur. Because even the most novice rider, if you put spurs on her heels, can make the horse do things the horse doesn't want to do. Because the very principle is one of poking. If you the, the horse, you're not really usually going to hurt the horse through spurring it, but if you poke the horse in its kind of haunches, it thinks the poke's coming from behind, therefore it moves forward at a faster rate and clip than it would if you weren't poking it. Because the principle is very simple. You move away from a poke. In fact, try it. Poke your neighbor right now, just hard as you can. No, you, you better be married if you do that, okay? And so um, using that image, the spur, I love how the writer of Hebrews says, let's consider how we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. I, I have a little acronym built off of spur, S-P-U-R. And so again, if you like taking notes, just write this down. There's just going to be four points under how, how we can make one another better. And the S, the first one, is say it thoughtfully. Say it thoughtfully. You see something in a friend, and, and they could do better. Maybe they've disengaged from an important connection. Maybe there's, um, uh, maybe there's a moral choice that they're making that is, um, is not right. There, there's all manner of things that you need to speak into a friend's life. And so the first thing is, you have to say it thoughtfully. Have you ever been the recipient of a confrontation where someone was thoughtless or careless or hurtful? It is not enjoyable, right? And so we say it thoughtfully, and I love how the writer put it. Let us consider. Let's put thought into it. Let's marinate on it. You see something that needs to change. Bring that matter before the Lord and say, God, help me have this conversation with this friend of mine. Help me use the right words. As you consider, don't do certain things. Don't turn to eight of your closest friends and say, have you seen what Gloria's been up to lately? Yeah, I, I feel the need to confront her for that. I want you all to know it. Don't do that. That's gossip. The Bible speaks against that. As you consider, you're spending time in prayer, in your own thoughts of how. Now, maybe you, maybe you turn to a trusted friend, a trusted friend who can hold things in the strictest of confidence and say, I see something here. Am I seeing the right thing or am I seeing the wrong thing? Can you give me some coaching? That might be okay, but you have to handle that very carefully. So say it thoughtfully. The P, the second point, point them to Christ. Now, this one's tricky because sometimes we've so intertwined what God has to say about something and what our culture has to say about something that we put words in God's mouth that God never, ever uttered. There are times where we have expectations of others that have more to do with the fact that maybe we're from Oklahoma or in my case from Michigan or from, or from the family you came from, you know? And so you might confront your friend because they celebrate Christmas wrong. They open presents on Christmas Eve and everybody knows God sent Jesus on Christmas morning, which is when you open presents, so don't be ungodly and open your presents on Christmas Eve. You see what I'm saying? That's just a cultural preference. That's not a big deal. You shouldn't go to the mat for that. But, but there are matters where you point them to Christ. We say, you know what? Here's what God has to say about this. Now, for us, this is really important. For us, that means we need to spend time in God's Word. We need to know what He actually says about an issue. Especially today, our culture, if you haven't noticed, keeps changing on a lot of things at a very rapid clip. And as a follower of Christ, trying to remain faithful to Christ, it's important for us to stand steady on what God actually says, not what political parties say, 
not what individuals we trust say, but what the Lord has to say. And so in a, in a conversation with a, a trusted friend, as we consider how to say it, we, we, we point them back to Jesus. Here's where the Lord speaks into this. That's the second point, point them, point them to Christ. The, the third point is to understand them. Understand them. We all have different friends in our lives where if we're having to utter a, a challenging word, there's some people, they like straight shooters. And you just go up and go, you know, Bethany, I need to talk to you about this. And uh, I've been praying about it, and here's what I see. And they, they want it just straight. And there's other people that you have to start out and go, Bethany, your flower arrangements in your front yard are just spectacular. And you do a lot of, like, wonderful encouragement. And then you go, hey, by the way, there's this thing I'd like to talk to you about. And you say the hard thing. And then you come back to, hey, are you, are you baking any more of those brownies you're so good at? You know, it's called a sandwich technique. You, you say something you, you say something very nice, and then you say the challenging thing. The worst is when you realize, wait a minute, I'm getting sandwiched. They just said something nice. Uh-oh, something's coming, you know. That's the worst. But, but um, each person, you have to understand who they are. Maybe you have the conversation at Panera Bread over coffee. Maybe you have the conversation in your living room alone with them. Maybe you have the conversation casually in the parking lot. It's just each person, you have to understand who they are and you have to anticipate how they might respond to the, the, the matter. And you have to understand, are they able to even accept it? Uh, one of the things that sometimes as Christians we do is we try to say something that needs to be said and we try to point people to Christ and they're not Christians yet at all. And then we try to superimpose upon them a Christian worldview and ethic. And the first thing they need to do is come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we get the cart before the horse and we expect them to ask, act Christ-like before they have Christ in them. We expect them to get cleaned up before they take the bath. And so we have to understand who the person is and what they're able to receive and what they're, what they're capable of hearing, understand. And then finally, R, the fourth point in that um, section of uh, how, how we make one another better is relationally invest, relationally invest in the, in the friend. In other words, in order to speak truth into our friends, they have to know that we care about them. They have to have a trust that, that we really have their best in mind. That we, we at our core want what God wants for them at their core. And in order to do that, we have to spend time with them. We have to build into them. I don't know about you, I've occasionally been randomly confronted through the years by people who didn't know me. They didn't, and actually the worst is when you get confronted and if they had relationally invested, they would know what's really going on. And the worst is when somebody comes and they, they have that challenging word, but they don't really know what's going on in your life. You may have been the recipient of it. It might make, it might make you skittish for, for saying challenging words to the friends in your life because you go, I've been the recipient of some, maybe, maybe abuse is too much of a, a big word, but, but um, at least been hurt and offended by people who said things carelessly. They didn't know what was going on. They weren't relationally invested. That's why relationally investing is so important to be able to be there, to speak into that. Now, as I say all that, um, it can almost feel like, wow, that is heavy. I don't know if I want a friend that I have to like spur on like that. You know, a lot of spurring on is much simpler. We spur one another on towards love and good deeds, the writer said, 
And then what's he followed up with? Not, not forsaking gathering together. You know what the context of that verse is? Hey, part of the spurring on is, I missed you last week. Where are you? That's the simplest spurring on. And in, in, in church, there's an interesting trend, by the way, in church. You may or may not know this. Uh, because of the busy lives we lead, there's all a variety of reasons for it. Many of them are understandable. But church attendance, I don't mean crossing, but across the U.S. is on the decline. And part of that isn't necessarily affiliation is on the decline, but regular church attendance has been on the decline through the last decade or so. And here's the writer of Hebrews saying, let's spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let's spur one another on. Be here. Be engaged. When you're here, open your heart. Some of that is the simplest of spurring on. And if you consider how to say it and you point them to Christ and you understand them and you're relationally invested, it could just be as simple as, I missed you. I missed you last week. Where were you? You were missed. And that, that is a kind and gentle spurring. Now, if you call up and go, you backsliding heathen, do you want to burn in the embers of that fiery place? You better get back to church. I probably would find a new church to attend if someone approached me like that. But if a friend calls me up and said, missed you, wish you were here, I'll, let's sit together next week. Odds are they will respond beautifully to that. Well, it's, it's bigger and broader than that. I want to close with a Bible verse from Proverbs. It says this, um, Proverbs, this is Proverbs 27, 6. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. Not a good word. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Just flattering people. That's not the goal. But a friend who steps on a toe is a trusted friend, according to the scriptures. Now, there's a challenge in all this. We can't always figure out who's going to be our close friends, right? You invest in a person, you can't always tell. And as I get older and we've moved around a little bit, it's always you making new friends and picking up new friends and identifying new friends. It's a challenge, but it's a challenge that goes way back to the very beginning of time when God saw we need other people in our lives. And God has spoken so beautifully into it. I think we can do it, right? And for many of us in this room, I commend you because I see around there's a lot of friendship in this room. But I'm sure there's a lot of folks even in this room who go, yeah, I feel, I feel like I'm around people, but nobody really knows me. And so I would just encourage you, roll up a, your sleeves Invest in the people around you. Make a phone call. Send an email. Say, let's have coffee. Build some of those relationship bridges. Let me pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, it is so good to be together. I'm thankful for this group of people. This is the dedicated core. Anybody who comes to Sunday school at 8.15 in the morning on a Sunday, they love you more than the average people do. So, Lord, would you bless them for their dedication to you, their heart for you, their passion for you, for each person in this room, for the, for the person who came in this room maybe feeling a tad lonely, would you provide a beautiful touch of friendship? For the person whose friendship card is full, help them be a good friend, investing wisely and in a God-honoring way. Lord, we give you thanks for your scriptures that speak truth into our lives. Help us to be faithful stewards of all you've entrusted to us, we ask. In Jesus' name, and everyone said... Amen.